Welcome to the Chicana Motherwork Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our show. We are a collective of Chicana PhD, mother scholars, artists, and activists. We created Chicana Motherwork to amplify the lived experiences of mothers of color within and outside academia. Together, as a Chicana Motherwork Collective, we theorize, write, organize, mother, and create spaces for communal healing and care out of our shared belief that the labor of mothering is a transformative act. Porque sin madres no hay revolución. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Chicana Motherwork podcast number 10. This is Ceci, and I'm here with Yvette. So we have um, an episode about Chicana mothering on the Altac, and we're going to explain more about um, what this means. So we're, we're going to think of this as a the first interview in a series with all the Chicana Motherwork co-founders. But before we get into that, um, me and Yvette are going to do a quick check-in. Um, did you want to go first, Yvette? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so right now, as some of you know, I work for the McNair program, and we I'm really happy that we got the grant uh, because it means that now we can kind of go off and continue with our McNair admissions, move forward with supporting our students. Fall quarter means um, it's grad school application season, and so there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, a lot of students coming in and out of my office for a number of different things from just needing to vent to needing someone to review a statement of purpose, a CV, a writing sample, anything, NSF um, and Ford applications. And we also, I just hired a new program coordinator, really excited um, to be able to hire another woman of color in the staff. And she's also a, a McNair scholar. Uh, so I've been busy training her and job market season and grad school application season also means that I am getting a little busier with my side hustle. So folks have been contacting me for copy editing and coaching, um, which is good, which is, um, it's great to be able to offer that service to people. Uh, it's also been a little bit more complicated for me with fall quarter because my partner just started a master's program on campus, and he's taking, it's an intensive program, so he's taking five seminars, three hours each. All of them have group work. So practically, it feels like every day he has um, a group meeting or a study group of some sort, which means I've been having to take on more of the domestic uh, labor at home or the caretaking labor at home, the evening routines. Uh, we're having to figure out carpooling and things like that with the drop-offs and pickups with my son. Um, so in general, this is kind of the start of a very busy fall. It's always busy for us with um, Emmy's birthday coming up and his birthday party and our anniversary. And then, you know, all the holidays for a lot of us start to come up with, um, yeah, with the November, December, Dia de los Muertos and Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, whatever you want to call it and then Christmas for those of us that celebrated. So I'm just kind of gearing up for a very busy fall. I'm already tired, but I'm feeling pretty, I'm feeling pretty chipper. I think things are, are going well so far. Oh, I know you're always um, hustling and, you know, I think 
you always try to do the best that you can. So that's something I admire about you. Also, your type A personality, which we'll, <laughs> which which we'll it's talk love hate we, we will talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and you know it, it also this time of year it reminded me of last year when we did the podcast with um the curandera andrea yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah that, and oh. that was a really special episode that was when you still lived in la no you still yeah, lived in Engle lived yeah in inglewood yeah. we recorded it in inglewood yeah yeah so um it, it i still think about the things that she shared um that were really powerful and that are still resonating with us even now. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for sharing your check-in. So now I will share. Um, so I've been, you know, same, still pretty busy. I've been hustling. I've been working on some projects. So um, I'm going to announce some of them maybe on social media later. Um, so I'm doing some work around women of color mothering and social justice, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, I also recently went to the Teachers for Social Justice Conference in San Francisco, and um, it was really beautiful to spend time with, um, you know, radical educators of color. And you know, the keynote was this woman of color, and you know, she kind of brought down the house. And then the presentations um, were really amazing. And um, however, kind of similar to what I shared about the Allied Media Conference, it seemed that in some of the spaces that um, whiteness was taking up a lot of space. So that's something I wrote in my feedback to the organizers uh, that this should, in my opinion, you know, this should be more of a space where people of color, you know, educators of color, youth of color are centered. And, um, you know, so kind of a little side eye was happening in the <laughs> some of the presentations, at least from me. But overall, I had a lot of good takeaways. Um, then um, some other things have been happening. So um, my Mothering While Brown blog got a lot of circulation. So I'm excited it's being republished in different venues uh, like Third Woman Press and Chicano Latina Studies. Um, and then some other things. Oh, so, you know, I love reading. <laughs> and I did want to mention the book that I'm reading now because I think it's perfect for this time of year and especially for like the... Um, the Me Too hashtag that's been going around with, uh, you know, women, femme, or non-binary people, queer people. Uh, and this novel that I'm reading, it's a book of short stories. It's by a queer Latina, and uh, the book is called Her Body and Other Parties by um, Carmen Maria Machado. And she writes about um, women and violence upon women's bodies, but she does it through like horror stories and um, erotica and speculative fiction. And so all of these elements, she just combines them together into this amazing book. And, um, and I'm reading it for the Rad Women's Book Club, which is here in LA. And uh, it's a group for women, a reading group for women of color. And I'm really excited and I'm looking forward to, uh, to, discussing this book with them. So it's really blowing my mind. And um, I see that the work that she wrote, the author wrote, is another way, you know, to have a response to, you know, the Me Too campaign or what's going on. So that's where I am right now. Um, I just want to quickly say that I'm so happy for you. And 
uh, regarding your Mothering While Brown uh, blog because it received so much attention and I know that you deserve it. And I know like whenever, Ceci already knows that um, I'm her biggest fan. I absolutely Aww. love her writing. <laughs> I think it's beautiful and I wish that I could write that way, but I can't, <laughs> even though I cut her words sometimes. <laughs> I'm the editor in the group. So We're going mean, to get to that too. Edit, but I love cutting, cutting people, like not cutting them, but cutting their words to get them. Not cutting. Uh, only some people. <laughs> only some people I will cut them, but. If it's from the valley, if it's from the valley, so, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I just want to say that I, I can't echo that enough that I think your piece is very powerful. Your writing is really powerful and I'm excited to read more. Oh, thank you, friends. I'm, I'm like, I'm excited too. Yeah, it's just I didn't think it would have that reception. I didn't expect real. I just thought my friends would read it. You know, <laughs> like I didn't think all these people would read it or want to republish it. So I'm just really happy, you know, what came of it. And of, and of course, the whole point was like honoring moms and kids of color and also Octavia Butler. So I think I achieved more than what I even thought would be possible. You know. Um, so thank you. And so now we're going to get into the podcast. So the topic or the title for the podcast today is called Chicana Mothering on the Altac. But first I wanted to ask you, ask you, Yvette, um, what is the Alt, what does Altac mean? And, um, and I'm asking because not all of our listeners are academics, but we want to still, you know, invite them into this conversation. So can you share what this term means to you, or maybe just offer uh, an explanation? Yeah, um, so I, I can just like briefly say that for those of us that have gone uh, to graduate school rather than professional school, so to master's and PhD programs, um, we're often trained to go into the academic track. And by academic track, I mean um, getting trained for R1 tenure track jobs to land, you know, to become an assistant professor. Um, at a research institution and eventually gain tenure. Um, ALT-AC is a term uh, that was introduced through social media to refer to jobs that are still academic jobs affiliated with academia, but they're not tenure track jobs. So these are you know, individuals who maybe work for academic affairs, who work for student affairs, who um, are you know, working administration. Uh, you're not necessarily on the tenure track, but you're still affiliated with the university in some way. And then, of course, I also want to mention uh, there's there's also another um, related term called post-act, um, which a lot of us don't really like post-act because it still centers academia, still positions academia in the center. But post-act generally just refers to a job, any job outside of academia. So once you've completely left um, the academic institution, uh, your job, which is in reality just a job, it's just getting a job. Um, a lot of people who were former academics will call that a postdoc job. Thank you so much. Yeah, and um, you know, we thank you for the definition and sharing what that means. Um, so now I'm just going to share a really quick bio for Yvette. So one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is because um, we want our listeners to get to know the five of us, the five co-founders of Together Mother Work, and um, so you know, there, there's some people who support our work who are our you know, friends or family. But um, for anyone who may not know about Yvette, I want to share this uh, quick bio about her. 
So Dr. Yvette Martinez-Vu is a Chicana PhD mama. She was born and raised in the San Fernando Valley, California, to immigrant parents from Jalisco and Sonora, Mexico. Yvette has an English degree and a PhD in theater and performance studies from UCLA. She is currently the assistant director for UCSB's McNair Scholar Program. She also provides freelance academic coaching and editing services to undergraduate and graduate students on job materials, funding applications, graduate and professional school applications, and more. So I've used Yvette's services, and she's amazing. <laughs> and fun fact, after years of battling with pain symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome and endometriosis, she has transitioned to a vegan lifestyle, which has substantially improved her health. And Yvette also considers herself a big advocate for a wide range of issues from accessing mental health resources, seeking special needs services, and helping other parenting students and mother of color navigate the academy. So thank you, Yvette, for, you know, doing this podcast and making time. You know, I know it's especially hard, but recording this uh, on a weekday evening, which is, you know, just hard in general. Um, so, you know, thank you for um, making time for this. And thank you, too, Ceci. Yeah. Some things you're going to hear about in this podcast today are some uh, things about Yvette's journey as a Chicana PhD mom. So we're going to talk about things like postpartum depression, her transition from the tenure track to the ALT-AC, her post-PhD life, what it's like raising a mixed-race child who has special needs, how she's navigating chronic illness and how a vegan diet can help, and her next steps and long-term goals as an independent scholar, writer, and more. And, you know, we hope that this is, um, we hope to share with you one story of what it means to be a Chicana mother on the Alltech. So the first question that I had for Yvette was to describe herself in three words. It sounds like an interview question. <laughs> uh, it's actually, that was, that's a, a difficult question to answer because I want to say those three words, but then I want to, like, back it up and explain it. Back it up. So, um, yeah, back it up. My three <laughs> words are Virgo, yes. empathetic, <laughs> and introverted, even though Ceci doesn't believe in intro <laughs> introverted. So, Virgo, um, I definitely have a type A personality. Um, I love it sometimes and I hate it sometimes. I'm really organized. I love to be in service of others. And whenever I, I talk to people, I usually tell them I'm a stereotypical Virgo. Um, not everybody's like that, but I, I definitely am. So go look up if you don't know Virgo sign, what the Virgo sign, you know, what the characteristics are. Look them up. That's me. Empathetic. Um, I'm also a Cancer rising, so I get really emotional. And that's one of the ways that I connect with my students, I think. Um, I'm really empathetic, I'm sensitive, I'm emotional, I'm vulnerable, I'm willing to cry in front of people, um, and I feel a lot of other people's emotions. So if someone cries if someone's in pain, I, I feel it too, I feel it strong. So I'm empathetic, and then introverted. Um, mostly in large groups, or if I don't know somebody, uh, I, I feel very introverted, I feel awkward, I don't wanna talk to people. Um, so if I ever seem serious, because um, sometimes I do come off that way, it's mostly me just feeling uncomfortable. Um, but then once you get to know me, I'm not. <laughs> I guess I'm not as No, you are not. So speaking of back it, <laughs> backing it up, one thing you all may not know about Yvette is that she could also drop it low. <laughs> <laughs> what? Have you even seen me do that? 
No, I remember we about? remember we went to um like back in the, the day. No, it was we had no, we had a writing retreat at a hotel, and you Look showed us. Oh, yeah. Wait, I don't remember. Oh, no, I you don't remember. I, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, damn, we've got some moves. <laughs> I actually didn't know that. <laughs> I guess I need to back it up again because I'm forgetting. <laughs> and we weren't even drinking. Like, I don't, we weren't drinking. I don't know. We were, I don't know what we were oh, doing. Oh, I don't need to drink. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, that's something you may not know. And, um, but yeah, so I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it later, but um, just because I know you, I know that you've had kind of like a, when you were younger, that you did have like a phase of, um, uh, like in high school, right? No, actually in middle school. Oh, in I middle school. To drugs and alcohol and yeah, and dating a lot and sex and all that stuff. Yeah, I started very, very young. In middle school, I think it was just my way of retaliating against my father passing away so young. Uh, but it it wasn't a bad thing because then by the time I got to college, I was over everything. <laughs> over the partying. Yeah, I was over the yeah. partying. You had it covered in middle school. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think that's another thing that people might not know. I think, um, you know, so one thing is just like about Jigana Mother work is that you know when we'll get feedback from people, but then also um, that's why. Actually, no, I think it was Josh's idea. I think it was Yvette's partner's idea to do this because um, when we do the other podcasts, we're usually interviewing other people, but then, you know, other listeners might not know these other details or histories about us. So I think what you said, Yvette, like, it seems like, you know, I don't like because you have a PhD and, you know, you're in this assistant director position for the McNair and it seems like on the outside, like your life is together, but you've actually had so much um, hardships and things that you went through and are still going through. You know what I mean? So it's not, yeah. it's yeah. not, you know, I don't know how people might perceive us, but, um, you know, you've definitely have fought a lot, you know, to be where you are. Thank you, Sophie. <laughs> um, Okay, so then kind of the first question I had is I wanted to ask um, a little bit about um, your experience with postpartum depression, which you had um, as a PhD woman of color mother. Um, And then this happened for you during your PhD program um, because you were pregnant. You were pregnant and gave birth to um, Emmy at that time when you were still a PhD student. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Um, Yes, of course. So. Um, I make it a point to be really open and honest about my experiences with depression. Um, getting diagnosed with severe postpartum depression, and I don't want to just say just depression. It, it was um, it was more intense than I had ever experienced before. So getting diagnosed when my son was 10 months old, that wasn't the first time I had um, dealt with depression, but it was the first time that I experienced it to this extent. Um, I, I associate my depression uh, or I link it to the birth complications that I have that, or that I had that affected my hormones. Um, I, I know I've mentioned it in my testimonial with um, complications with hemorrhaging and having multiple procedures after he was born. Um, but the distinct memory that I have about experiencing postpartum depression was like, one, 
I didn't really know any other moms around me who were going through and feeling what I was feeling. And um, two, like, it, I was, it was scary. I was getting racing thoughts. Um, it just felt like one negative thought after the other, just like stinging me, stinging me, stinging me. Like I couldn't control it. Um, and it was the first time in my life that I ever needed a reason to live. Like every day I asked, like, why should I be alive? Why should I be alive? Why should I live? Um, and I've, I never, I not that I remember, I never had to question that before. Um, but I've, I feel grateful in retrospect. I feel grateful and privileged that I had already been exposed to mental health services and I had done the work to be able to dissociate myself from those thoughts and to acknowledge that I needed to get help. So what I did was, um, and I was experiencing those symptoms for many, many months. And at first I thought I was like, oh, I'm just, I'm just so tired. The first year is so rough. And I just thought that the first year of having a child that most people felt this way. Um, but then when I realized, no, this is not normal or this is not, um, this is not what most people experience. Uh, I used my student insurance uh, to seek therapy. And I also uh, went to see a psychiatrist for the first time in my life. Um, that was the first time I considered taking medication. Um, so I did um, take medication for treating the depression. And I'm really proud to say that within six months, I was able to wean myself off of it because um, it was hard to even take medication because I'm not a big fan of, of pills. Uh, and I was afraid that I would become reliant on it. So it's just like, if you need it, I, I'm definitely all about like, do what you need, what your body needs to get you kind of back to your quote unquote, like old self again, or whatever feels good to you. Um, and even though I'm better, <laughs> that's not to say that I don't fall in and out of depression um, and anxiety, because I've also experienced lots of different forms of um, anxiety disorders in the past. And so that's one of the reasons why it took me so long to learn how to drive, and I still hate driving. <laughs> but um, yeah, I still I still experience those symptoms. I fall in and out of them, but now I know what to do when that happens, and thankfully I have um, support. So that's what I want to say about postpartum depression. And yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think um, there is still in like the wider, you know, Chicanx, Latinx communities that. Um, you know how you said you just you kind of internalize like oh well motherhood is supposed to be hard and um and then you know um Eva and I have talked in the past about um you know we've kind of seen we've kind of seen the ways that our mothers mothered us in the sense of like being self-sacrificing or sometimes putting themselves last or serving you know us or the kids or you know everyone else first and then themselves second. And um, it also reminds me of, you know, sharing your story is really powerful, Eva, um, as a Chicana mom, you know, seeking those mental health services and, and for the depression and anxiety and, and the fact that it was impacting you so much, and but you were able to access those resources. And, and I think that's why it's so important to um, talk about it or how you advocate for it or you're very open about it. And I also appreciate how um, this is something that Ana Castillo also mentioned when we interviewed her for the Chicana Motherwork podcast, that she also shared her struggle with depression and um, kind of echoing this, the same type of things that, you know, it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to get help, you know. Um, so thank you for sharing um, your story, Yvette. Um, 
I wanted to move on to the next question that I had. Um, and this was, so I was thinking of the title, you know, she got a mothering on the Altac and um, the way I thought of it, and I know you had a response to this was, well, what was it, what was it like for you to break up with academia in the sense that, you know, um, getting your PhD, but then now you have a, a different type of position that's not a tenure track oh. professor? So <laughs> I think Bessie knows what I'm going to say. Um, well, when I first decided that I didn't, I didn't want to continue going on the academic job market, I, I did associate it with um, kind of a breakup, a breakup with academia. But now that I've thought about it or I've had some more time to think about it further, I guess I shouldn't say that I broke up with academia. Um, I should be more specific and say that I broke up with the tenure track system because my current job is still an academic job on a college campus. Um, but it was difficult. Breaking up with the tenure track was one of the most difficult decisions I had to make in my life thus far. Like I don't want to, um, I don't want to downplay it. It was really, really hard. Um, I'm only 29 right now, so to think that for eight of those years I was convinced that I was going to become a professor. Um, that was a long time for me. And that was part of my identity. So um, it took a while to come to terms with it. But there were a lot of reasons and a lot of really good reasons, um, my own you know, specific circumstantial reasons that I decided to leave the tenure track system. Um, I, you know, and those are, I, I want to be clear, like, those are my reasons. That doesn't mean that I'm like against uh, against folks pursuing the tenure track system. I'm definitely supportive of those of my friends that are on that route. Uh, but uh, yeah, I still promote it and I, I'm still all for it, but I also like, like to tell people and to serve as an example of like, you can do other things too. Um, there are other options. Um, so I just want to say a couple of the reasons why for me, uh, leaving the tenure track system was the best thing I could have done. The first one has to do with chronic illness. Um, I, I have been a workaholic most of my life. That's, um, that's the way I've managed to stay functional. Like whenever my mental health um, symptoms would start to kick in, I would remain functional by working or whenever I had problems at home. Um, with family or anything going on that was um, upsetting, I would take it out or deal with it by just working. So, in graduate school, I worked myself sick. I started to develop symptoms of what I thought was irritable bowel syndrome. For many years, I've thought I've had um, irritable bowel syndrome, and when in actuality, it's irritable bowel disease, but whatever. Um, I developed those symptoms my second year. And then I developed symptoms of endometriosis around my fourth year. And um, the pain in terms of the symptoms um, is a combination of cramping, um, stomach aches, pelvic pain, along with migraines, nausea. And this is regular. This is daily pain. Uh, and it varies depending on my stress levels. So, and that doesn't include the other symptoms, the more embarrassing symptoms that nobody ever wants to talk about, like vomiting and diarrhea, which are, were also and have also been regular symptoms for me. So um, at my worst, I was not functional. Uh, 
I would, anything I would eat would make, give me a stomach bug. So every other week it felt like I was battling a stomach bug. I would call in sick. I would miss meetings. I would miss appointments. Um, and I realized that as a professor, my work would never end. My stress levels would likely um, not subside. And I didn't want to be working an average of over 60 hours a week like most professors work. Um, instead, for me, it seemed more appealing to work 40 hours a week and to be able to be allotted sick time and actually use it and not feel guilty for using my sick time and to be able to clock out at five and not worry about having to do work after five and to be able to have weekends to myself. So that's why uh, a different type of job setting seemed more appealing to me. Yeah. And, and the next, then, oh yeah, go ahead. Sophie. Oh yeah. And then, um, yeah, so thanks for sharing more about um, uh, having a chronic illness that's also like an invisible illness. So, um, yeah. I think that's like, you know, and, and there is a, there is, you know, um, people, groups that try to raise awareness about chronic illness or invisible illnesses, um, or disabilities, but that's another thing that people would not know just by looking at you. Right. Yeah. And I, I know it affects my moods too, because whenever I'm in pain, I have to hide it, um, to try to remain functional. And so sometimes I seem serious, but it's not because. Uh, of any other per uh, like I don't want people to personalize it. it's actually just because I'm in pain and trying to hide it um, and yeah it's it's not easy to have an invisible illness because it's not something that you can easily like quantify and say like this is what I have and this is the time that I I should be given um, certain kinds of accommodations because of this um, it's not yeah it's not as straightforward and the symptoms are not they come and go and they come in triggers and they come in waves and sometimes it's like constant and sometimes they'll just go away and then they come back so yeah it's it's been interesting to navigate that okay but um i want to go to my the next reason <laughs> i have a lot of reasons but i'll try to keep it to i don't know three reasons so the next one is um financial obligations so i was on the academic job market for two years i didn't end up landing a tenure track job uh, most of my peers on the job market, the folks um, who were graduating from my program in theater and performance studies, they were willing to um, take on lectureships or um, adjunct for a few years while on the market. And I just, I couldn't afford to do that. And I was unwilling to do that because um, I couldn't support my family on a below the poverty level paycheck. Um, I realized that I needed to leave the tenure track to some extent because I needed to secure a full-time job. I needed benefits. Um, I've been the primary financial provider uh, for my family for several years. And ever since my job, uh, so I'm sorry, ever since Josh left uh, the military, because he, he was in the military for eight, about eight years, and then he left, and then he tried to go back to school. And so for a while, I've been trying to support us. And so I was like, well, he's got disabilities and Emmy has special needs and I've got chronic health issues. So we need healthcare and we need to be able to pay our bills. And so that was a big reason, just being real about our financial obligations. And the last reason uh, has to do with values. And I know I've said this before, or at least I feel like I'm always, I feel like a broken record when I say this. 
Um, I know I mentioned this um, on the Chicana Mother Work blog post that I wrote, where I felt for a while that my values were not or are not aligned with the values of the academic tenure track system, especially applying for R1 institutions. Um, I know I, I love being in service of others. So I value service first, then teaching, then research. Um, there's the broken record. And um, my current job for me, at least for now, is an ideal job because um, most of what I do is related to serving students. So all day I'm interacting with students and I love it and I'm, I'm serving the population that I want to serve. And then I also get to teach. Um, I teach uh, seminars twice a week. And I also have the flexibility to pursue research interests. So my uh, supervisor is really supportive of the work that I'm doing with Chicana Mother Work. It's something that I can incorporate into my schedule. And um, I can work on research projects without having any kind of restrictions, whether it's uh, the tenure clock or uh, you know, certain ac uh, academic publications not getting valued for, um, for when you go up for tenure. So I'm glad that I don't have to worry about those things. Um, and that's why I'm really happy in my current work setting. Uh, so that's, those are some, those are my top three reasons for leaving the tenure track. Yeah, and I really, um, you know, I think um, this, your second reason about financial obligations or difficulties, I think that's another reason um, because, you know, all of us in Chicana Mother Work are from, like, low-income and working-class backgrounds. So as opposed to uh, many people in academia who do have access to, like, different kinds of family wealth and resources. So, and, you know, there's been, like, articles and books that have come out that's just like um you know someone someone who has more of those like financial resources they are able to adjunct um but then for someone like you Yvette you know you have you're the main financial supporter for you know your family so it's you don't have that same kind of choice um yeah so I think that's another thing about um you know, it's like, you know, academia is not a meritocracy. Like the, the field has never, not. you know, it's like, it's not, it's not an even playing field, but, um, mm. and you know, at, for you, it's like, it might, it might even be, um, another form of like push out. Right. Because it's oh, like, yeah. we mm -hmm. can't afford, you know, you couldn't, you literally could not afford to go on the job market, the academic job market a third time to, you know, maybe you would have gotten something, but maybe not. Because in the humanities, um, it does take longer to generally to secure uh, a tenure track position. Um, and then your, yeah, the values. Um, yeah, I think um, that's also another issue of like what you shared about, you know, you're really prioritizing your values and you're not, now you're at the point where it's like you're not compromising. So I really admire that, Yvette. And, um, yeah, and I'm just happy to, um, you know, that we've get, we get to work together and she got a mother work and, you know, we've known each other for a long time since we were undergrads. So, um, I'm excited for like the work that you do with your students at McNair. I'm just like, those students are so lucky to work with you because <laughs> well, you're like, <laughs> you know, your students of color, you know, your first gen students, like all the students you work with or, you know, other, other, other under, upper, underrepresented groups. So, 
Thank it's you. It's a lot of that. fun. I mean, it, sometimes it's, it can be hard. It can be emotionally exhausting uh, because they've got a lot of different, you know, wide range of circumstances and issues. But but it's it's worth it. Yeah. And then so that. So that question also kind of leads to my question about your post-PhD life. So um, what has that, um, what has, uh, you know, now that you're a doctor, <laughs> what, <laughs> what is that life like for you? Uh, I wish I could, I think a lot of us will say that. A lot of us that have finished graduate school will say like, oh, I wish I could tell myself this back when I was in grad school. Um, I can say that there's a there's definitely a light at the end of the tunnel, um, and it's really hard to see the light, and you don't see it right away. Um, I like I want to warn people that when you finish the dissertation or when you file it, when you finish the PhD, um, a lot of times I guess you would assume that it would be this really festive, happy event, um, but. For a lot of us, that's not to say everybody, but a lot of us, there's actually uh, a form of, um, I guess what 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 some call post PhD depression or post I like to call it postpartum dissertation depression. Um, I remember after filing my dissertation, instead of feeling happy, I just felt angry and sad. I was it just felt so anticlimactic. I was just like, okay, was this even worth it? Um, was it worth it to spend six years earning a PhD in a field, in theater and performance studies, a field that most people don't understand or value, especially knowing that I was now pursuing a different type of um, job that wouldn't necessarily be aligned with my PhD, with um, the theater degree. So it just, it was hard because I'm finished and I don't have a job and I'm comparing myself to peers who didn't go to grad school, who went and got a job right out of undergrad and who um, maybe were buying homes or traveling or doing things that I was still too broke to do. Like, I'm like, I can barely pay my rent. Um, I'm in debt uh, and I'm still like, I'm using my credit cards because I'm in the negative. So um, it was, it was rough. The first Six months after the PhD were really, really rough. Um, but now it's been a year and a half. And um, I feel like I'm starting to settle into my new job. It's really nice to be treated like a colleague and not be infantilized. Um, and I think that's bullshit. I mean, I don't believe in infantilizing. I treat my students. And I mean, everybody has their own mentoring style. Uh, but in terms of my politics and how I like to, my mentoring style, I like to treat them like laterally. I'd like to treat them like adults, like humans, and not make them feel, you know, stupid when they ask the question and not be condescending towards them. So now that I'm um, a, an academic coordinator, like people treat me like a peer, people treat me like a colleague in ways that I was never treated like in, in graduate school. So um, it's awesome to get compensated for my time. Um, I think it's awesome that I get compensated to work with students because before I was always like helping others out, but then nobody really, like there was nothing other than my personal satisfaction. I wasn't getting anything else out of it. And I was um, de depleting myself because I was doing too much service work in addition to all my other grad school responsibilities. Um, 
and I don't want to like, I want to make it clear because I know Sassy has called me her middle class friend. Um, so no, I I'm make it no, clear. I'm, no, I'm joking. I was joking. <laughs> no, but no, I know but it's like, like. So you assume that, okay, I'm going to be a baller after grad school because making anything over 20K is a lot. But then loans kick in and fucking childcare is expensive. And all of the, with all of the bills, like, we're still barely making ends meet. The good thing is we can pay our bills. So when I'm not in the negative, I'm not like using my credit card the way I was using it before. Um, and I'm starting to pay off debt, but I'm still like, we're not like comfortable. We don't have discretionary income. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's, it's fine. It's, it's, it's fine for where we are. Um, and the point is, is that I feel a lot happier. Um, the work that I'm doing matters to me. I, it's it's work that's being valued by others. Um, not all the days are easy. Um, I still I still am left feeling like I'm not doing enough. Sometimes I will like go back and think about oh, what would it be if I were a professor, and like what would it feel like to have a million publications and to be on a million committees. Um, but even though maybe my CV doesn't look as great as, as it would have looked if I had been on the um, tenure track system. I'm like, girl, I'm your CV is amazing. Shut up. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it really is, though. Uh, yeah. And you're doing okay. that without, no, but you're doing that without tenure. I think that's why it's even, like, more exciting for me, you know. Thank you. I, I don't always feel that way. I don't always feel like I'm doing enough. But I'm no longer haunted by the thought that I used to have in grad school, which was, oh, I should be writing. Uh, I should be doing work. Like, it was just 24-7. I should be doing something. I should be doing something. I should be doing something. Evenings, weekends, et cetera. Um, and now I'm like, no, that time is precious. Um, that time is my family time. Um, that time is when I work on side hustles and other projects. And, um, and I don't have a lot of family time either um, because you know, Josh is in his MA program. He's got a bunch of, I mentioned earlier, a bunch of study groups. And Emmy's in um, preschool. So I really do try to cherish the time that we do have together. And, um, yeah, I guess I don't know what else to say other than, I guess, post-PhD life. I think for most of us, it's so much better than being in grad school. So just, just, just. Try to finish, and you don't have to finish. If you don't want to finish, if that's not your thing, then just go on and do what you want to do. But just, yeah, move on to the next stage, whatever whatever that means for you. Either you finish your program or you do something else. I'm all about supporting people and their path, so I'm not going to be like, oh, you have to finish now that you started. No, for some people, it doesn't make sense for them to finish, and for some folks, it does. So do your thing and just know no matter what, you know, staying or or leaving, you're going to be okay afterwards. I think most of us are okay, and we have support, so reach out to us. And I love how you also said, um, now that you're in this position about being, um, one of the things that you mentioned in your response is, like, being compensated for your time and your labor. So, yeah. you know, I'm still, I'm still in the PhD, or I'm still... Um, in the dissertation phase or ABD, but I'm just like, 
man, you know, in the quote unquote, like real world or like post PhD life, it's like, you know, in any other, um, any other job or, you know, it's like, there's so much free labor that's expected that we do. And I'm just, re- that's one thing that I'm looking forward to. And I, I've seen how, how you have done it. Um, where it's just like, if it's not, you know, le- I guess m- another way is like learning boundaries or how to say no, you know, mm-hmm. even if you're still in the PhD. So um, that happened recently with a conference I was going to, uh, first I was invited and then disinvited <laughs> because, oh, because, um, and well, first of all, like they asked like a week before the conference, you know, they're, like all these things. And then, you know, no offer of compensation is just like, expected that you know to go there and have my presentation and, That's you know, a no. <laughs> yeah and like doing work for free and then you know but I said because of like my son's pickup time you know I can't do it at this time but is there any way to change the panel time of the panel which I know is hard but it could be doable and then being told no and then like not part of it anymore so I'm just like okay I can't be doing you know free labor so um, so I look forward to that. So then my next question was kind of related to your, um, uh, your chronic illness. And as you mentioned in your bio, I wanted to ask you about, um, your new vegan diet. So, and how, how do you relate that to, um, like healing and health, you know, especially as a, as a Chicana with a chronic illness? Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm really excited to answer this question because uh, I would have never imagined that I would have gone vegan. I was vegetarian for seven years and then I stopped um, because, you know, it was hard to maintain it back then. Uh, I had uh, I developed anemia, low iron levels, etc. Um, so it's, it's really interesting, you know, years later for circumstances to change and now like realizing I may never want to go back to eating animal products. Um, it's only been two months, so I can't say whatever. I'm like mostly vegan. Um, and it, it was a decision that my partner and I made after watching a documentary. I know, boring. Uh, <laughs> we were watching What the Health, and this is a documentary that actually Judy um, from Chicana Mother Work and her partner um, recommended to us. And uh, I knew that the documentary had uh, prompted them to go vegan, but I didn't think much of it. I was like, oh, whatever. I love documentaries. I love learning. So let me check it out. And so we watched this documentary and it starts, you know, they start to tell us about how all meat products are carcinogenic to humans, which we know a lot of products out there are, at least a lot of us know that uh, products out there are so toxic. So it's kind of hard nowadays to be around things that are not inducing cancer. But anyway, point was, so they're like saying, okay, so they're carcinogenic to humans. Um, They're as cancerous as smoking cigarettes and dairy foods are linked to autoimmune diseases. And Josh and I, we don't really smoke. Um, I have nothing against folks that do smoke, but we just personally don't. It's not something that we enjoy. And we were both like, I had seen how folks had eventually wind themselves off medication after going on the vegan um, diet. And we've both been on a number of different medications. Um, we both have a number of different medical um, or health problems. Um, 
And so we figured, oh, whatever, like, let's just try it out and see what happens. And if we can wean ourselves off the meds, great. If not, then whatever, we'll go back to eating meat. So we did it cold turkey because that's our personality. Josh is also a Virgo. <laughs> so we're like, fuck it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it like, like um, all out. All, all out. Oh, yeah. And I know Josh <laughs> and his um, apocalypse survival kit. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Multiple kits. <laughs> so we like gave everything away, all of our meat dairy products to friends in the area and just stocked up, went to the grocery store and bought a bunch of um, other foods. We created a meal plan. Um, I tried to be conscious or of um, in making sure it had enough protein, iron, B12, things that before I never really thought about, even when I was vegetarian. And it was it was incredible. And and this was not something I expected. In in two weeks, almost all of my IBS and endometriosis symptoms were gone. That's not to say they're completely gone. That's not to say that like I'm cured or whatever. No, I'm not cured. But it it was amazing. I experienced it was. I had a day where I remember where I was like, oh my gosh, I don't think I've experienced pain all day. And this hasn't happened to me in years, like at, at least since 2011. So all of a sudden I was so happy. I was like, wow, this is what it must feel like to not have pain. Um, so, and what was interesting too is that I have a lot of trigger foods um, that are like things like beans and broccoli tend to be trigger foods, other um, forms of um veggies and all of a sudden without the animal products I I wasn't having any issues so they weren't triggering me anymore so just that just the improvement in my um, my pain symptoms was enough for me to say hey let me like keep this up this feels really good um, but there have also been other benefits I, I do have more energy I don't sleep very well I have sleep apnea so I wake up multiple times at night but now, I, even if even though I'm not sleeping very well, I'm, I'm still waking up and feeling pretty alert, feeling more energetic. Um, my mood obviously has um, improved, and <laughs> that's a little, a little uncomfortable to share on the podcast. <laughs> but my libido has increased, Ooh, which is interesting. Because, uh, <laughs> also, of course, Josh is like, let's keep it up. <laughs> He's so, like, I'll buy you all the Costco vegan food. <laughs> He's like, eat it all. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, but uh, um, so since Emmy was born since 2013, I have suffered from a low libido. And it's um, it was hard, especially among friends, like other folks who really enjoying themselves. And I was like, am I like, I felt almost like being... It's like, is this what it must feel like to be asexual? I'm not attracted to anything or anyone. I don't want to have sex. I don't want to do anything. And so um, that was rough because it meant, it meant it was just rough on our relationship or it has been rough on our relationship and a lot of compromising because it's not fair to a partner. But now um, I feel like my libido is back to where it was when we were first dating, which is so, it's nice. <laughs> All hoeing around. <laughs> I'm like, how can I say this without sounding like a hoe? <laughs> and then you put it out. <laughs> I'm like, I know you. I hope my students are listening. <laughs> <laughs> I know some of them. The oh, oh. <laughs> Just pretend you didn't hear it. 
pretty um, smooth transition. It's actually been easier, um, in my opinion, to cook uh, vegan foods than, than regular foods, at least for me. Um, and it's been easier to meal prep for the most part. And in terms of a lot of people say, oh, it must be really expensive. It's actually comparable to like uh, vegan meat replacements that are comparable to buying regular meat. So our bills are either the same or actually cheaper than before, um, our grocery bills. So yeah, I mean, so far these are the benefits that I've had just the two months, who knows what will happen after a year. I'm so happy to um, to hear that, that how you mentioned the biggest thing has been, um, and how you said it was unexpected, uh, how much it has helped your symptoms. Um, yeah. That's really powerful and how you're able to eat foods that you previously were not able to eat, at least in your case, Yvette, um, mm -hmm. it helped. And, you know, I couldn't be more happy that you're not having to deal with the same type of daily pain that you were having previously. Thank you. And yeah, I'm saying like it worked for me and for my body and for my issues. And that's, to say, that's not to say it may work for everybody, but hey, it doesn't hurt to try <laughs> Um, so then kind of shifting the, the subject, um, I guess the next two questions are about, um, what is it like mothering or parenting a special needs child? And then, um, also going along with that, what is it like raising or parenting, um, a mixed race child? So if you wanted to share on those, um, on those topics. Yeah. So, um, Regarding the, the question about mothering a special needs child, uh, I kind of want to share a little bit about the journey uh, because it's not something I don't think I ever heard from anybody else. And I also don't really have um, a lot of people that I know that are like my loved ones that uh, had experience with raising a special needs child. So, I mean, for me, like this started around the 18 month mark where um, my partner and I noticed that um, our son, Emmy, wasn't making the same kinds of sounds or articulating the same words as other um, babies and toddlers his age. So he could only say a few words. And then when he did say them, they weren't comprehensible to most people. Um, uh, like, I remember for a, for a long time, he would substitute the any consonant with the H sound. So if he said Paw Patrol, he would say, ha, ha, ho. Or if he was trying to say Santa Claus, he would say, ha, ha, ha's. And only, only like my partner and I could understand him because we knew what he was referring to. Um, so we spoke to his pediatrician, and she referred us to get him um, an assessment, a language and speech assessment. And then from that assessment, he did qualify for speech therapy. So we started him um, in therapy around that time, shortly after the 18-month mark. And then... By September 2016, that was over a year after getting therapy every week, his therapist ended up uh, diagnosing him with a speech disorder. So it wasn't just a delay. She said that what he has is called childhood apraxia of speech. And that's, um, that's a speech disorder that makes it difficult for children to clearly articulate sounds. Um, has to do with like praxis, with like articulating um, especially consonants. And then by that time, we were also noticing other symptoms. So we noticed that he was really sensitive to loud noises. It was really difficult for him to make eye contact. 
every time he'd play, he'd line up toys. Um, he loved walking on his tippy toes. He'd just walk on his tippy toes all the time. He would spin in circles. He would trip a lot. Um, he would play independently with very little social interaction. Um, or, you know, he would just ignore other kids. He was hyper-focused. He could just spend hours doing something. And, and, and I think I remember having, um, having a conversation with a friend who had a child his age, and she would say, oh, wow, your kid can stay in the playpen and play with the toy for over an hour straight without asking for your attention, without crying. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that family. Um, but I didn't realize. I was like, oh, maybe other kids don't do this. And, um, and then he also started to develop these um, really strong interests, um, almost uh, obsessive interests. Like he uh, has strong interests with all things related to Christmas, all things related to Santa Claus. Santa Claus, Santa bags. His life, his life was Christmas. So all day, all night. If you knew Emmy, you knew that he was obsessed with Christmas. Um, I remember. <laughs> yeah, everything. He, yeah. Any bag he would find, it was a Santa bag. And anything he found, he would stick it in there, and it was a toy. It was his like he was trying to give people presents. And to this day, he still does it. Um, and it's been it's been years. <laughs> it's been <laughs> Uh, and oh, awesome. Emmy. I, mean, oh, I love it. Yeah. And I love how expressive he is. Yeah. Um, so we just, be, with all of these symptoms in mind and doing the research and following our gut, we decided, okay, let's just get him evaluated uh, for um, autism and let's see what happens. And after a two-hour assessment at the UCLA Medical Center, he was diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Um, he was considered what some people call high-functioning or um, what others call Asperger's. And that just means that he's able to manage well in a blended classroom, um, that he's you know, fine interacting with um, neurotypical kids. But he still can benefit from autism resources, um, and he can still um, strengthen his social skills. So for me, it's been challenging not, not mothering him like, I love my interactions with him. I adore him. I think he's awesome. We all love our kids, right? So I think he's perfect. Uh, but I just constantly worry. I'm always worried. Am I doing enough? Um, how do I make sure that he has a bright future? How do I prevent him from getting bullied for being different? Um, so that's always on my mind. And then it's also more time-consuming because it does mean having to be in touch with speech therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, doctors. Uh, going to regional centers, attending IEPs. We just had his annual IEP, the Independent Education Program, or ind no, Individual Education Program meeting, to see if he still qualifies for speech therapy. And he still does qualify for speech therapy. Um, but I'm, I'm, I feel privileged um, that he chose me as his mama, and I take Aww. on the challenge. And, um, and I'm grateful that he doesn't have any other health issues for us to worry about. Um, and he's made such a huge improvement. It's, that's why I'm like, if you have any doubt, if, and if you have access to healthcare, like get your child assessed, see what resources, like don't, I would say, don't worry about the stigma. Like the more resources they have access to, like the better, why not? You know, especially if it's free. And if you were to meet him, um, if you were to have met him a year ago, I, I, I've shown people videos of how he um, articulated himself a year ago to now, it's like day and night, like you wouldn't even recognize him. Um, and 
I don't know. I'm just, I'm. Oh, we love it. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I'm so happy. I don't know yeah. What else to say other than I'm just, I'm just so proud of him and I feel really lucky to be his mom. Oh, I know he's going to grow up to be a genius. I mean, he has two, <laughs> he has two genius parents. So <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want him to have issues to where he has really high expectations. I'm like, you well, do what you want to do. You don't have to be a genius. <laughs> but you also like have to get an education. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'm like, I'm going to raise a woke child. I'm not going to let this child not walk out. of. <laughs> oh, my God. I have oh. being woke. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I was at um, the Natural History Museum this weekend in L.A. And I got so angry that. Because I just, you know, I'm like, oh, dinosaurs, like, mm. you know, insects, you know, minerals and rocks, you know, natural history. Right. And then, of course, yeah. I walk into an exhibit, which I didn't know was there, but I guess it's I'm assuming it's been there for a long time about like um, objects from um, like the Incas and Maya uh, Mayans and um, Aztec Mexica. And then also the indigenous group from where my family's from in Michoacan. Oh, and wow. I felt so horrible, just like sick to my stomach. Ugh. And so I was with Aloncito, so, you know, and he's seven. So, you know, I, I, you mentioned like raising a woke child. So I'm like, I'm going to tell him what I didn't learn until like college. So, you know, I'm like, you know, they stole the, the museum, the people, they stole these, these objects. It doesn't belong to them. They think they could have them, but they're not supposed to have them. They should give it back. And then Aloncito, you know, so we like talked about it and, yeah. So it's just like having that access to um, education, you know, the way that we did and the ways that, you know, like our parents were not able to access that same education. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, and then this is part of also, you know, Chicana mother work or the way we engage with it with our kids. So, yeah. Um, we were at Griffith Park, too, and then we're driving up and we're walking up and Aloncito like mentioned Wow, there's a lot of white people here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I love I'm, I'm like, oh, he's observed, you know, but it's just like, because we've had so many conversations, but, but yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. It's like navigating, navigating like the resources for having a special needs child. Like I think um, you and Josh it, it have done a great job trying to get these resources and I and even it's it's like even navigating these systems can be so hard and I know I've seen my sister go through it um and I know that's why I remember when you told us when you shared with us that Emmy was diagnosed with apraxia and then the only reason I knew about it is because my nephew is also diagnosed with it but otherwise I wouldn't have known you know there's just things it's some of these things is just like not as widely known or even autism itself is still misunderstood. Or it's discouraged. People are like, there's nothing wrong with him. Yeah. Why are you trying to get him assessed? Like, are you trying to find something wrong with your child? Yeah. I've had people say that to me. Oh, <laughs> wow. Like, no, there's nothing wrong with him at all. Of course not. Yeah. But I want him to have access to resources if he qualifies. Mm -hmm. So I think you've done, um, yeah, an amazing job. So, and that's why I wanted to, um, yeah, to ask you and, and, you know, maybe if anyone's listening who has a special needs child, like maybe if you don't know what's going on yet, but you could just keep trying. And even that process is exhausting, but you can do yeah. it. Like I've even seen my sister calling, 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 you know, sometimes it's they don't call so her back. Yeah. But mm -hmm. it's just like my sister is also, she's also very stubborn like me. So 
she will just go to the office <laughs> and like demand to speak to people. You know, it's just there's ways to do it. And, you know, you're not you're not alone. Um, so then the next part, what is it like parenting um, a mixed race child? And I think um, in your case, you have like a, um, a biracial child, meaning that um, it's not. I think even um, mixed race people, it's like, it's not, it's usually like one white parent and like a person of color, but in your case, mm -hmm. because your partner is um, Vietnamese American. So it's, so Emmy is both, you know, Vietnamese American and from you, you know, Chicano, Chicana, or, you know, however he, however he will identify. Um, so can you speak a little bit about that? So <laughs> uh, I like to think that if I think that I live in a Nepantla state or in an interstitial state or if I'm constantly feeling like I'm in between, living in between worlds, um, I do worry and wonder um, how Emmy feels as someone of both Vietnamese and Mexican descent. Um, you know, as you mentioned, my partner, Josh, he's Vietnamese American. Vietnamese -American. I self-identify as Chicana and in the past, I've actually called him, sometimes I call him a Viet Chicano, um, but I, I mean, we'll see what, how he self-identifies in the future. Um, but it's, it's a hard question to answer because uh, it, it, every day, I guess for me, it means making a lot of compromises, and it also means not being too hard on myself because he might not 100% relate to his Vietnamese or his Mexican cultures. So it's, it's in, in some ways, it's harder than even talking about um, the special needs question because, like, when we compromise, it means that we're constantly navigating multiple different things. Like, it's not just the Mexican and the Vietnamese culture, but then, like, the dominant like US American culture that's embedded in all the structures that we are experiencing in our day-to-day -day lives. So, um, I mean, the way we do it is most of the time we feel it the most during the holidays. Um, so, and special events too. Right now it's, you know, with winter is coming up. Um, the holidays are starting to come up. So usually we either so my family, we celebrate Noche Buena, so we stay up all night on Christmas Eve. That's one holiday um, that we try to split up between the two of us because Josh's family, they celebrate Christmas Day. They wake up early. Um, so sometimes, um, in some years, we've actually just not slept at all. <laughs> we just went straight from Noche Buena to his family's place. And um, other times, we, we've had to make decision of like, okay, this year we're gonna go travel to Michigan to see your family, or this year we're gonna stay in LA with my family. Um, and we we also feel it around New Year's because, you know, my family, we celebrate the Gregorian New Year and his family celebrates the Lunar New Year. So we know that every year in January and February, we'll be celebrating the New Year. Um, I don't know. I just, I, I worry a lot about it. I worry a lot about how he will feel as a mixed race child about whether or not he's going to relate to his cultures, whether or not he's going to relate to his peers who might be 
who might not be um, mixed race or multiracial. And even now, like in his classroom, he's in like a mostly like, kind of white dominant classroom or and the few um, Latinx kids are white passing. So it's it's just interesting. Like I don't know when he has um when he has conflicts with other children, I never know if it's because of his quirky personality or because he's mixed race or if it's because of his um, he stutters a lot when he talks, if it's because of his speech articulation. Um, recently, we had an issue with a white passing Latinx boy who was, who's been, he's been pinching him, he's been hitting him, and he keeps calling him pizza, and then he keeps telling the other kids to call him, to call Emmy pizza. And then Emmy comes home and he tells me, like, Mama, this boy is telling me, he's calling, he keeps calling me pizza, uh, he keeps laughing at me, he keeps pinching me, he keeps hitting me on my leg, and the fact that it just came out of nowhere and that it happened more than once and that I didn't know and that the, the teachers didn't know was a big uh, red flag. Uh, obviously, we documented that shit. Obviously, we wrote a letter or I wrote a letter to the teachers to be like, hey, we're not messing around. We're going to make sure that he's okay. I talked to his teachers. Yeah, you do so not want to mess with Yvette. Oh, hell <laughs> no. Hell no. <laughs> I scared them. The freaking administrators tried to shame me. They're like, oh, it's not standard protocol to be writing letters to teachers. And I was like, well, it's not my standard protocol to just talk and not document anything. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but, so, I mean, he's okay. We're keeping track of that. But in the back of my head, I'm like, did that happen? Because, like, why? Why, was, why is he being picked on? Why is he being targeted by another child? Like, what is it? Like because in many ways he is different from his peers. Even his personality, he's not the most aggressive kid. He's very sweet. Um, so he tends to hang out with girls a lot more than with the boys in his classroom. So, yeah, a part of me sometimes wonders, is it because he's mixed race? Is it because... And he's visibly, I think for the most part, he's like visibly mixed race. Like he just, he's not white passing. At least I don't think so. He's light-skinned, light but like I don't think he's... I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider himself white passing. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I mentioned this story because I still worry a lot about him, about him being othered and being treated differently. And, and just how do, how do I make sure that I protect him? And how do I make sure that he protects himself when I'm not there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's complicated. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I know, um, Emmy, his, um, I know previously I've seen also, um, his like gender expression. So it's like, he's, he likes pink or, you know, you know, quote unquote, obviously there, the gender binary doesn't exist, but it's like reinforced a lot in school or, Mm -hmm. you know, daycare or for my son, especially public school. I mean, there's nothing wrong with public school. I went to public school, but like there's certain thing, the way, you know, it's just like given like boys and girls, you know, and, Mm -hmm. It's it's that socialization starts so early, you know, like yeah. boys do this, girls do this. And then Emmy um, might not even quite fit like the, you know, the tough, rough, you know, aggressive oh, no. kind of personality, you know. Like we let him, if he wants to wear a dress, he can wear a dress. He has a Santa dress he likes to wear. And we let him um, paint his toenails, you know, he's like 
I think his toenails are blue right now. <laughs> um, and he's very expressive and open about it um, because we want him to be. We want him to feel comfortable in, in his skin. But, yeah, it, it could be a number of different things. And then I think um, hopefully in the future, I know we when we went to the Knox conferences last year, we met um, the children's book author and illustrator, Maya Gonzalez. And that's another project. Hopefully we could do as Chicana mother work in the future is making our own children's books. And um, because I know you mentioned, it's just like, and I haven't seen like, where is like a mixed race Viet Chicano kid with special needs, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> The, like I haven't I need seen to write that book. <laughs> yeah. So and I know that's what like Maya was encouraging. And, you know, she has a program where she helps and mentors um, collectives and individuals to like write and, you know, create their own books. And, I'm you know, so I think of your story and I'm just like, yeah, you know, hopefully in the future we could. Um, that could be one of the projects that we can do. You know, well, if and when I do write that book, you're going to be my illustrator. <laughs> oh, yes, I love I love drawing. And Christine. She's so artistic. And, yeah. and Christine, too. Both of y'all. I'm like, dang, can I have a little bit of that artistic <laughs> uh, skill? I'm like, can I have your type A skills? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't want them. No. <laughs> it's like sometimes you will, like, you will, why am I like this so hard? <laughs> you will cut us. You have cut us. So that's, <laughs> but that's another story. <laughs> um so then I guess like wrapping up the final questions. Um, so I, this kind of echoes the previous questions of like, so how has that transition been? Not only from, you know, graduating with your PhD, but also moving away from LA because you're from the Valley, you know, you went to school. At, um, so you did your undergrad at UCLA, also your PhD at UCLA, you worked at UCLA for a little bit after graduating. So, and you know, what does it mean now that you moved with your family, you know, to uh, Santa Barbara? And um, and then the last question kind of goes into that is, so what are some next next steps for you and um, kind of like your long-term goals? Okay, yeah, I'll answer both. Um, so the first one about moving away from LA and that transition. I think that moving to Santa Barbara has been one of the best decisions that I've made or that we've made as a family. Um, we're still um, close enough to family that we can see them um, regularly, uh, you know, once or twice a month, but not too close though, where the family obligations start to overwhelm me, where I'm like, oh my gosh, like it's hard being around family all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a beautiful city. It's, it's really family friendly. Um, I'm trying to build community because, I mean, it is a very white area and uh, so it's a very middle class area and um, in terms of like age groups, you don't find a lot of folks in my age group that's you're either college aged or you're retired. Um, but um, I, I mean, circumstantially, like my day-to-day my -day life, I have a job that I enjoy. I'm around people of color all day. Uh, my son is in a preschool that he likes and Josh was admitted to a master's program here. So um, things have started to fall into place. The past couple of months, I, we had no idea what we were going to do once we got here. I was like, well, we'll just figure out jobs here. We'll figure out something for Josh to do. And now, um, and now we're there. So um, I don't know that I don't, I can't say that we're going to be here long term because um, I don't, I don't technically have job security. I, I know that we have the grant for five years, 
but I don't know what will happen after that. And I know that Josh is job hunting, but I don't know where he's going to get a job. So if he gets a job here, and if I can, you know, keep working with McNair, eventually move, work my way up to becoming a director, um, I could definitely envision myself staying here long term. Um, but if not, then we'll see what happens. And then in terms of what's next, it's I really don't know, um, and I'm okay with not knowing. I, like I said, I can see myself eventually working my my way up to becoming a director of either a McNair program or a research program or something related to working with uh, students. Uh, but there's also a part of me, like I, I, I start to think about, well, what if I want to start my own business, or what if Chicana Mother Work becomes a nonprofit, or what if? Um, you know, what if when my when what if when Emmy gets older and I have more time on my hands, I decide, fuck it, I just want to become a tenure track professor in the community college system because I fucking love community college students; they're awesome. And hey, so I, they I'm are. They're my, they're my favorite like, students. I'm like, I, you mean like me? Incredible. <laughs> yes, yes. Every time I meet a transfer, I'm like, go you, go you. Here's my card. I'll be yeah. your mentor because I just think that they're like it's just it means a lot to to transfer in because there's so many obstacles and I'm like dang I want to work with those, with those students all the time yeah. anyway point is I have no idea and uh and, and that's fine and we'll see what happens okay well thank you so much for um the interview so that's the and I mean we could really go on <laughs> I mean I think probably it's probably longer than we thought. I'm right? like a minimum of thirty minutes. <laughs> like, oh wow! Uh, no, that didn't happen. But no, but I think you know it's just really good stuff. I'm I'm really glad that you shared all of that, and you know, you're able to um, you know, be vulnerable and really show different parts of yourself. So you know, thank you. And um, I think the last thing we're gonna do just to wrap it up is um do some brief shout outs and then a quick announcement okay so i have one shout out um for this for this episode um the shout out goes out to nancy morales um she's a good friend that i've made since moving to the area so shout out to nancy um i want to thank you for being a source of support and a source of community um i really appreciate our friendship and i look forward to future play dates and you know we'll see if we do like a book club or whatever I'm just like really happy to have found another friend especially someone in the area because a lot of my friends are no longer why I no longer live close to my other friends I still love you all but I wish <laughs> we were closer to each other yeah <laughs> even so, when you're yeah, on the Oh yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. Think? Oh no, like even when you were on the west side, it, it was still even when you were here, oh it was so hard to get together. Getting from the fucking west side to the east side yeah. was also like such a trek. Yeah. <laughs> but um but yeah. So shout out to Nancy. And then my shout out, I want to give a shout out to my um Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow students and the instructor, uh, Dr. Lisa Sanchez, who's also a Mellon fellow, and she's also a fellow uh, woman of color uh, scholar mom. And so I'm the TA for the Mellon Mays undergraduate um, research methods seminar for this fall semester at USC. And this cohort, they are all five, you know, incredible undergraduate women of color students. I'm just, every time we have seminar, it's just 
I'm so happy to work with the, these students. They're amazing. Um, they're preparing for uh, their first Mellon Regional Conference. And so they were doing their practice presentations uh, yesterday. And it's just, you know, I'm already so impressed and I'm so happy, you know, to support them. And um, so also shout out to Mellon, which is how me and Yvette met way back in the day mm -hmm. as little baby undergrads. Um, so yeah, so that's my shout out for my Mellon fellows uh, and students. So the last thing I want to mention is um, make sure um, if you're not already to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So we have some really exciting news about the Chicana Motherwork Anthology that we're going to announce pretty soon. And we all, we're going to share more information about the National Women's Studies Association. So uh, me, Yvette, and Christine will be attending next month in Baltimore. And we have a presentation about Chicana Motherwork. And we're also going to have a podcast recording there during the panel. So stay tuned for that. And if you want to help support Chicana Motherwork, um, we're slinging some t-shirts and mugs. Uh, or if you just want to directly donate, we have the information uh, on ChicanaMotherwork.com. Uh, you could also find more information on our Instagram and Facebook. And you could email us at ChicanaMotherwork at gmail.com. So I think that wraps it up. Is there anything else you wanted to say, Yvette? Oh, just thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate it. I was dreading it. I was like, oh, <laughs> this whole podcast is about me. Really, oh people God. hear about me. Uh, but no, thank you. If you got to this point, oh my gosh, <laughs> I love you. <laughs> That's it. Oh my god, yeah. So we'll see how like the final. I don't. I'm like I don't even know how long it is at this point, but it's good. It's some good stuff. So um, thank you all for your support and for listening, and um, we'll be back with another podcast very soon. Thank you. Thank you.